churches he himself planted on his first missionary journey. Not long after he planted the churches, false teachers came in, dogged his steps, and they were teaching a false gospel. They're known as the Judaizers. Uh, the false gospel they taught was salvation by faith and works. Salvation by faith and circumcision and adherence to the Mosaic Law, the ceremonies of the law in particular. And Paul makes the argument throughout Galatians that that's not true, that salvation is by faith alone. And here in chapter 3, he does that by saying this, If salvation is by law, if you say salvation is by works, you've nullified the work of Christ. You've nullified the work of the Spirit. You've nullified the work of the Father. And you've nullified the testimony of Scripture. If you can be saved by your works, Jesus died for nothing. He died needlessly. And in verse 10 is, I think, the most, one of the most glorious passages in the Bible. As many as are of the works of the law are under a curse, for it is written, Cursed is everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law to perform them. Here's the bad news. The bad news is this. God is good. That's the bad news. God is good. It's the bad news because God is good and we're not good. God is holy. We're not holy. God is just. We're unjust. And therefore, how can a just God forgive guilty criminals? What would you say of a judge who forgave a criminal? He's not a good judge. How can God do that? Verse 13 is the answer. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. That's how. Jesus bore the curse of the law, the condemnation of God's wrath, so that you and I could be free from that wrath by faith. That's the good news. And that's the God we worship. So let's go before Him now in prayer, and then we'll open up His Word and continue to study First John. Father, we are so thankful that You have saved us, not by law, not by ceremonies, not by works, not by our effort or our own merit, but You've saved us by grace through faith. We saw Wednesday night as we're working through Romans chapter 4 that we are saved in the exact same way that Abraham was saved. The gospel that was preached to us is the gospel, Galatians 3.8 says, that was preached to Abraham. It was preached to him in seed form that in him the nations of the earth would be blessed. That his seed, his descendant, the Lord Jesus, would come into the world and bring universal blessing to the nations through His work on the cross. We know that's the gospel. We believe that gospel, and now by faith we are blessed with Abraham the believer. And we are grateful for that blessing, Lord. And now we seek as a church to worship You. We seek as a church to be faithful to the gospel, to go into the world with the gospel, to communicate it clearly to people that they might come to see the glory of God in the face of Christ and come to salvation in Him. So continue to use our little church, Lord, to make an impact on the world for Your glory. Thank You for Your people. Thank You for the fathers. Lord, it's Father's Day. We're thankful for the greatest Father we could ever ask for, You who would never leave us nor forsake us. We're thankful for other fathers, human fathers, who love us and discipline us and teach us the Word and sacrifice for us and and we're so grateful that you have designed the family and the home the way that you have in your wisdom. So thank you for that. Thank you for your people here this morning who have gathered to worship in spirit and truth. And now we come to perhaps the most important part of our worship when we hear from God, when we hear from heaven, when we hear from your word. So Lord, help us now. Give us the ability to grasp the truth of Scripture. May our 
intellectual faculties be aided by the Holy Spirit that we might understand the truth and live it out for the praise of your name. Amen. All right, well, we are still working our way through the book of 1 John, 1 John, and we've come to the final chapter, 1 John chapter 5. The end is in view. We're almost finished, just a few more weeks, and we'll finally be through with this rich, rich book. And for this morning, we'll begin to take a look at the passage that we're going to be looking at over the next two weeks, and that is verses 6 through 12. 1 John chapter 5, verses 6 through 12. The theme of 1 John is assurance. Assurance. John wrote this letter, as he said in verse 13, so that we may know that we have eternal life. He wrote the letter so that we could distinguish between a true Christian and a false Christian, between true Christianity and false Christianity, true conversion and false conversion. In a word, he wants to provide his readers with confidence in their salvation. And he presents three tests throughout the letter that will enable a believer to attain that confidence, that assurance. The three tests are the doctrinal test, the moral test, and the social test. True Christians believe the truth about Christ, they love God and His people, and they obey His commandments. We just saw all three of those tests in verses 1-5 through as the marks of an overcomer, the characteristics of one born of God. But now, in verses 6-12, through John once again limits his focus to just one of those tests, and that is the doctrinal test. This is part 4 of the doctrinal test. Let me read the passage to you. 1 John chapter 5, starting in verse 6. This is the one who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ, not with the water only, but with the water and with the blood. It is the Spirit who testifies, because the Spirit is the truth. For there are three that testify, the Spirit and the water and the blood, and the three are in agreement. If we receive the testimony of men, the testimony of God is greater. For the testimony of God is this, that He has testified concerning His Son. The one who believes in the Son of God has the testimony in himself. The one who does not believe God has made him a liar, because he has not believed in the testimony that God has given concerning His Son. And the testimony is this, that God has given us eternal life, and this life is in His Son. He who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have the life. There is a word there that should have caught your attention. It is the word testify or testimony. It's used in its noun and verb forms nine times in these seven verses. And verse 9 really tells us what the passage is all about. Verse 9, If we receive the testimony of men, the testimony of God is greater, for the testimony of God is this, that He has testified concerning His Son. This passage is about the testimony of God. It's about God's testimony concerning His Son, concerning Christ, concerning Jesus. It is a Christological testimony. 
So the key word then is testify or testimony. Now the word has the idea of someone who has seen or heard or experienced something and then is able to give a report of that experience. It means... Yes, ma'am? Mine, it's witness. Witness. It's another translation of the word. So it's a witness. It's someone who can bear witness. That's what the word means. So it's one who's able to bear witness, to give evidence, to provide proof, to give testimony. And often it refers to eyewitness testimony. And in the passage, it ultimately refers here to the testimony of God Himself. You know, eyewitness testimony has always been an important part of any culture. It's important in our own culture. Today, in court, in a court of law, it's not uncommon for witnesses to be called to the stand to give an account, to give testimony to something. And then, based upon the testimony given, the jury would arrive at a verdict. A decision is made. And eyewitness testimony was also important in the biblical culture. Scripture is constantly emphasizing the necessity of testimony. Deuteronomy chapter 17, verse 6 says, On the evidence of two witnesses or three witnesses, he who is to die shall be put to death. He shall not be put to death on the evidence of one witness. In other words, the only way anyone was to be put to death by the law system in Israel was on the evidence of two or three witnesses. This would discourage or at least make it less likely that one person could just make up a lie and call someone to lose their life unjustly. So there is then this wise principle of multiple witnesses. Deuteronomy 19.15 restates that principle saying this, A single witness shall not rise up against a man on account of any iniquity or any sin which he has committed. On the evidence of two or three witnesses, a matter shall be confirmed. There is a need for a multiplicity of witnesses to bear legitimate, trustworthy testimony. In the New Testament, in Matthew 18.16, Jesus then applied that principle to the issue of church discipline. There, Jesus said, But if He does not listen to you, that is, the sinning church member, Take one or two more with you, so that by the mouth of two or three witnesses, every fact may be confirmed. Paul then said the same thing to the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians 13.1. Every fact is to be confirmed by the testimony of two or three witnesses. Clearly then, this is a principle that saturates the Scripture, saturates the biblical revelation. In other words, if you are to believe something... There needs to be evidence or witnesses to substantiate your belief. There needs to be substantial evidence to prove your conviction. We can't just be gullible. We've talked about that before. We shouldn't just believe anything. If we're going to believe something, we need to have good reason to believe it. We need to have evidence to believe it. And the issue in question here is the truth about who Christ is. It's about the nature of Christ, the person of Christ, the identity of Jesus. In verses 1-5, through John highlighted three marks of an overcomer, one of which was faith. Faith. In verse 1 he said, the true Christians believe that Jesus is the Christ. In verse 5 he says, 
that true Christians believe that Jesus is the Son of God. In other words, true believers believe the truth about Jesus. They believe the truth about Christ. We must believe that Jesus is the Christ and Son of God. But why? Why should we believe that? You know people who don't believe that. I know people who don't believe that. We go to school with people. We work with people. We have family members who don't believe that. Why should we believe that? Why should we believe in Christ instead of some other God? Or why shouldn't we just forsake all religion and be an atheist or a secular humanist? Why should we believe that Jesus is the Son of God? You know, I've had people tell me on the streets when I'm out witnessing that they're God. Told me they're God. Should I believe them? I don't think so. I thought they were lunatics. I thought they were out of their mind. I don't think I should have believed them. They could provide no evidence to prove their claims. So I shouldn't believe their lies. Their unsubstantiated lies. But what makes Jesus any different? What makes Him any different? How do we know that He really is the Son of God? Without evidence without testimony, without witnesses, we shouldn't believe that claim. Jesus Himself affirmed that. In John chapter 5, verse 31, Jesus said, If I alone testify about Myself, My testimony is not true. That's right. If a man comes and he claims to be God, he claims to be equal with God, he claims to be the Son of God, but he can provide no evidence, no witnesses, no testimony to back up his claim, his claim should be rejected as false. If a man bears witness of himself alone, his claim should be rejected as false. So why then should we believe that Jesus is the Son of God? Well, John answers that this morning by providing us with a reason. He gives us reasons to believe that Jesus is the Son of God. He provides in this passage a fourfold testimony. Four witnesses that testify to the fact that Jesus really is the Son of God. Four witnesses that constitute a Christological testimony. So four witnesses, and as we consider these witnesses this morning and next week, my hope is that they would strengthen our faith in the fact that Jesus really is God the Son. So four witnesses, and they are the water, the blood, the Spirit, and the Father. The water, the blood, the Spirit, and the Father. So with that said, let's call our first witness to the stand. Witness number one, the water. The water. Look at verse 6. This is the one who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ. Now you're going to notice as we read through these verses, it's going to be difficult to treat these witnesses separately because they're mentioned together. But we're going to do our best to deal with them as distinctly as possible because they are distinct witnesses that can stand alone, but that together constitute God's testimony. So John says, this is the one who came by water and blood. Who is the one? Jesus Christ. Or back to verse 5. Jesus, the Son of God. Jesus, the Christ and Son of God, is the one who came. 
He came. That is to say, He came into the world. He came in the flesh. He came in His earthly ministry. He came to Israel. He came to John and the other apostles. And He came as the Christ and Son of God. And He is the one, John says, who came by water. That seems a little confusing, doesn't it? Why doesn't John just speak in straightforward terms? What do you mean, John? What does it mean that He came by water? Well, there are several theories that are put forth by the commentaries. One theory is that this is a reference to John 19.34. John 19.34, there John records as Jesus is hanging on the cross that one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear and immediately blood and water came out. So you have a reference there to blood and water. Here it's water and blood in reverse order. So Some scholars say maybe John's referring to that event. But it's really difficult to see how that event, that particular verse, testifies to the reality that Jesus is God. It certainly testifies that He was a man. It certainly testifies that He really did die. That's water and blood running out would be a sure proof of death. But it doesn't really prove that He is God. And whatever water means here, it serves as a testimony to the deity of Jesus. In verse 7, he goes on and says, For there are three that testify, the Spirit and the water and the blood. The water, in some way, testifies. It somehow serves as a witness to who Jesus is. And it's hard to figure out how John 19.34 on its own testifies to the deity of Christ. But there have been other theories set forth. Some have said that the water refers to Christian baptism and blood refers to the Lord's Supper. Martin Luther and John Calvin held to those views. Others have said that the water refers to the cleansing element of salvation. In Scripture, God does talk about sprinkling clean water on us and washing us with the water of the Word. But again, none of them really, none of those theories fit with the context here. None of them fit with the theme of testimony. None of them fit with the historical context of 1 John. John is saying that somehow the water is a testimony to the deity of Christ, and though the Lord's Supper and baptism do serve as a testimony to what Christ has done, it serves as a testimony to our union with Christ in that work, it doesn't really serve as a testimony to who Jesus is. It doesn't really substantiate His deity. So I don't really think either of those views are what John has in mind here. So the question then is, what does John mean by water? I think it refers to His baptism. That is, to the baptism of Christ. And I'm convinced of that because of the historical context. Remember, John wrote this letter to refute a false teaching, a heretical notion that was going around in Asia Minor. He wrote it to refute a Christological error. And one error that he was dealing with was the heresy of Serenthus. Serenthus taught that Jesus was a man, just a man, merely a man, who was empowered by the Christ Spirit. The Christ Spirit descended on him at his baptism, but then departed from him prior to the crucifixion. So he was just a man. He was, he was the Christ at His baptism, but He wasn't the Christ at His death, the false teachers would assert. 
So John then is saying, no, Jesus is the one who came as the Christ and Son of God, and He came as such at both His baptism and at His death. So water refers to baptism, blood refers to the crucifixion. Jesus was the Son of God at His baptism and at His death. So He came by water. The water, the baptism of Christ, serves as a testimony to His divine Sonship. Now how does it do that? How does the baptism of Christ testify to the deity of Christ? Well, let's read about it and see if we can answer that. Turn with me to Matthew chapter 3 for a moment. Matthew chapter 3. That is the first book of the New Testament. The first of four gospel accounts that record the life and death and resurrection and ascension of our Lord. And Matthew wrote his particular gospel to a Jewish audience to prove to them that Jesus really is the Messiah. He really is the Christ. And one way he does that is by outlining the miraculous events surrounding his baptism. So Matthew chapter 3, and I'll start reading in verse 13. Then Jesus arrived from Galilee at the Jordan, coming to John to be baptized by him. But John tried to prevent him, saying, I have need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? John kind of understood it. He's like, wait a minute, I'm a sinner. You're the sinless Lamb of God, the sinless Savior. Why in the world am I baptizing you? Baptism was a symbol of cleansing from sin. It was a public declaration of repentance from sin. Why would the Son of God need to go through that? You should baptize me, John says. What, what, this doesn't make sense. But then, verse 15, Jesus answered and said to him, Permit it at this time, for in this way it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. In other words, baptism was God's plan for Christ to fulfill the law, to fulfill God's will for Him. Our bat- We're so sinful, so messed up, we can't even get baptized right. So Jesus had to be baptized for us. And in doing so, He identifies with the people He came to save. So permitted at this time, so we can fulfill all righteousness. Then He permitted Him, verse 16, after being baptized, Jesus came up immediately from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened, and He saw the Spirit of God descending as a dove and lighting on Him. That's a little out of the ordinary, isn't it? That doesn't happen every day. Didn't happen at my baptism. I don't think it happened at yours either, right? Verse 17, And behold, a voice out of the heavens said, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. That is a pretty miraculous baptism. Jesus comes up out of the water. The Holy Spirit descends upon Him and lightens on Him. And God the Father speaks from heaven and says, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. I think the baptism does a good job of testifying to who Christ is, don't you? It's a pretty clear testimony here. His baptism is recorded in all four Gospels. And I'm not going to read all of them for you this morning. But just to kind of further drive home this point, turn with me to John chapter 1. John chapter 1. John wrote his Gospel, the fourth Gospel, probably written toward the end of the first century. And he wrote it probably to refute the same Christological error that he was refuting in 1 John. So there is a strong emphasis 
on the deity of Jesus throughout John's Gospel. I mean, think about the way he starts the Gospel. In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, the Word was God. John is concerned with the deity of Christ. And the baptism of Jesus is one sign that He is exactly who John says He is. So John chapter 1, starting in verse 29. The next day He saw Jesus coming to Him and said, this is John the Baptist, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is He on behalf of whom I said, After me comes a man who has a higher rank than I, for he existed before me. I did not recognize him, but so that, here's the key right here, but so that he might be manifested to Israel, I came baptizing in water. In other words, the baptism of Christ manifested Jesus to Israel as the Son of God. It was the public unveiling of Jesus to Israel of Him as the God-man. Then John goes on in verse 32 and adds, John testified saying, I have seen the Spirit descending as a dove out of heaven, and He remained upon Him. I didn't recognize Him, but He who sent me to baptize in water said to me, He upon whom you see the Spirit descending and remaining upon Him, this is the one who baptizes in the Holy Spirit. I myself have seen and have testified that this is the Son of God. There's John's testimony. John the Baptist becomes a witness to the reality that Jesus really is the Son of God. And it was the very baptism of Christ and the miraculous events around His baptism that convinced John of that very fact. Back to 1 John 5 now. So the baptism of Jesus proves that He is the Christ and Son of God. He came by water. But that brings us to a second witness now. And that is the blood. The blood. Look at verse 6 again. 1 John 5, verse 6. This is the one who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ, not with the water only, but with the water and with the blood. Now it's clear from verse 6 that there's one thing that was not in question. There was one thing that was not really disputed. One thing that was for certain. And that is that Jesus came by water. The false teachers acknowledge that. They acknowledge that He came by water. They taught that, remember, the Christ Spirit descended on Him at His baptism. He was then, in some sense, the Christ at His baptism, the false teachers would assert. However, they denied that He was not the Christ at His death. Because the Spirit of Christ had already departed from Him prior to the crucifixion. So John, writing to refute that lie, says, Jesus came not with the water only, but with the water and with the blood. He was the Son of God at His baptism, and He was the Christ and Son of God at His crucifixion. Now, you say, how does the death of Christ prove that He's the Son of God? It would seem that if He dies, that becomes proof that He was a weak loser. That becomes... Evidence that he he failed. That becomes evidence that he lost the battle. But we know that's not true. The death of Christ provides great evidence that He's the Son of God. Let's read about it and again find out how. Turn with me to Matthew chapter 27 now. 
Matthew chapter 27. We don't normally turn this much, but I think in light of the nature of this passage, it is very helpful and necessary to do so. Matthew 27. And again, Matthew's trying to prove to his Jewish audience that Jesus is the Christ. He did that in chapter 1 by presenting his ancestry. Jesus is a descendant of Abraham and David. That makes him the rightful heir to the throne. He did it by presenting his virgin birth. He did it by presenting his miraculous baptism. But here at the end of the gospel, he proves it by presenting the miraculous events around his death. So Matthew 27, verse 45 tells us that darkness came out of the land for three hours while he's hanging on the cross. This is 12 p.m. to 3 p.m. and there's darkness on the land. We're pretty smart people. I think we know when we look outside at noon, it's not dark outside. It's usually daylight. But for some reason, it was dark for three hours while the Son of God was hanging on the cross. And then if you go down to verse 50, verses 50 to 54 really help us understand this. Verse 50. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up His Spirit. We know from the other Gospels that He cried out, It is finished. Then He yielded up His Spirit. He died. Verse 51, And behold, the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and the earth shook and the rocks were split. What an event. If you killed a guy who claimed to be the Son of God, and right after you killed him there was a great earthquake, darkness for three hours, and the veil of the temple was torn you'd probably think something was up. This is amazing. The veil of the temple is torn. This signifies that the way into God's presence is now made open by Jesus. His death has made God's presence available to His people. That's pretty miraculous. But then it continues to get even more miraculous. Verse 52. The tombs were opened, and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep they're not taking a nap, by the way. They're dead. Many of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised, and coming out of the tombs, after His resurrection, they entered the holy city and appeared to many. People are literally being resurrected from the dead. This isn't a TV show. This is reality. The Old Testament saints are resurrected, and then they come into the city and they present themselves alive to people. It's pretty convincing. What should somebody conclude to all of this? Verse 54 gives us the answer. Now the centurion and those who were with him, keeping guard over Jesus, when they saw the earthquake and the things that were happening, became very frightened and said, watch this, truly, this was the Son of God. That's amazing, isn't it? You know what's so wonderful about the Scripture? Not only is it the people of God giving testimony to Christ, even His enemies. This is a pagan Gentile a soldier of Rome, who no doubt was mocking him just hours before this. And he sees the events around the death of Jesus, and what's his conclusion? This is the Son of God. We made a mistake. This is really the one who came from God. Back to 1 John 5 now. Does that convince you? Convinces me. Mm -hmm. The blood of the death of Christ certainly proves that He was the Son of God. By the way, blood here is a euphemism for death. Leviticus 17.11 says the life is in the blood. The end of the verse then says it is the blood 
by reason of the life that makes atonement. Blood symbolizes life. The pouring out of blood is a symbol of the pouring out of life. All of that then refers to the atonement that Jesus made on the cross. That event proves He was the divine Son of God. It bears an unambiguous testimony, an unmistakable testimony, a crystal clear testimony to who Jesus is. And we know that the death of Jesus didn't end that way, did it? He didn't stay long in the tomb. He was resurrected. He was raised again. And you can't separate the death of Christ from the resurrection of Christ. Romans 1.4 says that He was declared the Son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead. The resurrection becomes God's public declaration to the world that Jesus is the Son of God. No one has an excuse. Jesus is the Son. So the blood then becomes witness number two. But John now calls a third witness to the stand, and that is the Spirit. The Spirit. Look at verse 6 again. This is the one who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ. Not with the water only, but with the water and with the blood. And then he adds, It is the Spirit who testifies, because the Spirit is the truth. It is the Spirit who testifies. Not only does John call the baptism of Christ and the death of Christ as witnesses, but he also points to the Holy Spirit as a witness. This is the Holy Spirit. This is the third person of the Trinity. This is God, the Holy Spirit. He Himself bears witness to the fact that Jesus is the Son of God. Now, how does the Spirit do that? Well, to answer that would be very difficult. The Holy Spirit does that in many, many ways. Uh, For instance, the Holy Spirit did it at the baptism of Christ, didn't He? We saw that in Matthew 3. The Spirit came and descended on Him as a dove. Luke tells us He came in bodily form upon Him. That's a pretty strong testimony. But He also bore witness to Christ through the miracles that Jesus performed in His earthly ministry. In Acts 2.22, as Peter is preaching the Gospel to Cornelius and the Gentiles, he said, Men of Israel, listen to these words. Jesus the Nazarene, a man attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs, which God performed through Him in your midst, just as you yourselves know. God attested to Jesus through the miracles He enabled Him to do, to perform. And we know it was God the Holy Spirit who empowered those miracles, and therefore the Holy Spirit bore witness through those miracles. Those miracles were so public and so irrefutable that to attribute the miracles of Christ to Satan, as the religious leaders did in Mark 3, is tantamount to blaspheming the Holy Spirit. Because it is the Spirit who enabled Him to do those miracles. To attribute the work of the Spirit in Christ to Satan is blasphemy of the worst kind. An unforgivable sin. In Acts chapter 5, Peter makes that same point as he preaches to the Jewish Sanhedrin. There, starting in verse 30, he says this, The God of our fathers raised up Jesus, whom you had put to death by hanging Him on a cross. He is the one whom God exalted to His right hand as a prince and a savior to grant repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. Here he goes, verse 32. And we are witnesses of these things, and so is the Holy Spirit 
whom God has given to those who obey Him. The Holy Spirit bears witness to Jesus and the Gospel. Just to give you one more example of this, in Acts chapter 10, verse 38, as Peter was preaching uh, to the Gentiles, he said this, You know of Jesus of Nazareth, how God anointed Him with the Holy Spirit and with power, and how He went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with Him. He was anointed by the Holy Spirit, and in the power of the Holy Spirit, He went about doing good, He healed the sick, He healed those who were oppressed, and it was so abundantly obvious that Peter tells these Gentiles, you know about this. You know it. The Spirit bore an unambiguous testimony to the deity of Jesus. But the Holy Spirit also bears witness through the Scriptures that He Himself inspired. He bears witness through the Scripture that He inspired. In 2 Peter 1, 20-21, Peter wrote, But know this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will, but men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. The Scripture, which testifies to the reality of Jesus as the Son of God, is the very words of the Holy Spirit Himself. But the Holy Spirit also testifies in our hearts, doesn't it? In regeneration, the new birth. Back in chapter 2, John referred to the Holy Spirit as that anointing which we have from Christ. The one who leads us into all truth. He says, because you have the anointing, you all know. You know the truth about Christ, if you're a Christian, because the Holy Spirit bears witness to that truth in your heart. That's why for many Christians, they don't really have much evidence to prove that Jesus is the Son of God. They might not even really know of all the great apologetical arguments to prove the validity of the Bible, but they believe. They believe to an extent that they're willing to give their lives for this because they are supernaturally born of the Spirit of God. And the Holy Spirit bears witness of Christ. So He does it in our hearts. He did it at the death of Christ. Hebrews 9 says, Jesus offered Himself up by the eternal Spirit. The Spirit's the one who empowered Him to do that. He's the one who was involved in the resurrection of Christ. That's why John 15.26, Jesus says, The Spirit of truth, when He comes, He will testify of Me. The Holy Spirit bears witness to Christ. And since all believers possess the Holy Spirit, He now bears that witness to the world through us. We have become witnesses of these things. Not eyewitnesses, but we've become witnesses because we've experienced the saving work of God through the Holy Spirit. In Acts chapter 1, verse 8, Peter, or Jesus tells the apostles, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be my witnesses. Every person who has the Holy Spirit is empowered to be a witness for Christ, bearing testimony to Him. So He bears witness through us, through the church, So it is the Spirit who testifies. And that's good news because John says the Spirit 
is the truth. He is the source of truth. He is truth itself. He can only speak the truth. And therefore we know that His testimony is true. It's a trustworthy testimony. And then in summary fashion, verse 7 adds, For there are three that testify, the Spirit and the water and the blood, and the three are in agreement. Now this is where it gets very, very interesting, isn't it? If you have a King James Version, you'll notice that your text says something different than mine did there. Or even a, either a King James or a New King James. And the reason for that is because the King James Version includes what theologians and scholars call the comma Johannium, the comma Johannium, or the Johannine comma. Comma in Greek, by the way, just means a sentence or a clause. So it's a reference to a sentence or a clause found in the King James Version of 1 John 5, 7 and 8. Listen to what the King James says here. For there are three that bear witness in heaven, the Father, the Word, and the Holy Spirit, and these three are one. Verse 8 then adds, and there are three that bear witness on earth, the Spirit, the water, and the blood. However, the modern translations such as the NASB or the ESV read differently. This is how my translation reads in verse 7. Verse 7 just says, there are three that testify. And then verse 8 adds, the Spirit and the water and the blood, and the three are in agreement. So the modern translations omit the testimony of the Father, the Word, and the Holy Spirit. Now why? Why? The differences here. Well, simply put, because our English text comes from the Greek manuscripts that are behind the text. You understand how transmission works and preservation works. John, when he sat down and he wrote this original letter, he wrote it on material that would not last very long. And so if the church of God was to have this inspired book for 2,000 years, they had to copy it. There was no printing press, by the way, in the first century. So you couldn't just print it off with your computer and your printer or or some sort of uh, business. So what you had to do is you had to have scribes copy the original and make copies of the copies. And these scribes meticulously and laboriously made thousands and thousands of copies. In fact, we have just today around 5,800 surviving Greek New Testament manuscripts. That blows away every ancient document of antiquity, by the way. The second closest is a poem by Homer. It's about 500 copies. We have 5,800 copies of the New Testament. That isn't full New Testament, though, just to clarify. That's just fragments of the New Testament. Uh, We only have, for instance, about 500 copies of 1 John. But about 5,800 copies of fragments of the New Testament. Ancient Greek manuscripts. And it just so happens that sometimes these manuscripts disagree. They're called textual variants. Textual variants. The discipline of textual criticism is to take these various fragments and examine them to try and figure out what the original actually said. Now most of these variants are inconsequential. They deal with things like different spellings of names or words and they really don't make any difference at all. In fact, less than 1% of the variants could be termed as major variants. And ultimately, none of the variants ever ever tamper with the theology or the ultimate history of the text. In other words, 
the message is never in question. We know what the New Testament says. But there are a few instances in which we find what we could call major variants, where they have real strong uh, different, different readings. And we find one such case here in 1 John with the comma Yohanium. Now I'm convinced that the comma Yohanium found in the King James Version was not a part of the original text of 1 John. And I'm convinced of that for a few reasons. I think what happened is sometime later, a scribe who wanted to prove the doctrine of the Trinity added it in order to do that. But you don't need to add the comma Yohanium to prove the doctrine of the Trinity. The doctrine of the Trinity is proven so clearly throughout the New Testament, you don't need the comma Yohanium, number one. Number two, within the context, the comma Yohanium really doesn't even prove the Trinity anyway. Because notice what it says in the King James There are three that testify, the Father, the Word, and the Holy Spirit, and these three are one. But then it says the Spirit and the blood and the water are one. So this no more proves the Trinity than it proves that the Spirit, the water, and the blood are a Trinity. All it would be saying is that these are one in their testimony to who Jesus is. But we don't need the Kamehameha. I don't think it belonged in the original text. And I think that for two reasons. Number one, the external evidence. And number two, the internal evidence. Externally, there are, as I said a moment moment ago, around 500 copies of 1 John in the ancient Greek New Testament manuscripts. And out of those 500 or so copies, only eight of them contain the comma Yohannia. Only eight of them read the way the King James Version reads it. And out of the eight of them... Four of them actually contain it only in the margin as a potential alternate reading. The other four contain it in the text. So think about that. Out of 500 or so copies of 1 John, only four of them actually contain the King James reading within the actual text. So the comma, I think, was not a part of the original. It's By the way, not only is it a very minority reading, there's only eight, It's a very late reading. The earliest Greek manuscript that reads that way is the 15th century. We have manuscripts that go back to the 2nd century. The earliest is the 15th century that reads the way the King James does here. You can add to that that this was never quoted by any Greek church father in the first four centuries of the church. These guys were dealing with what we would call the Trinitarian controversies. They were dealing with Arians and Modalists teaching Sabellianism, denying the doctrine of the Trinity... And never once, as they sought to prove the Trinity, did they quote this passage. No one at the Council of Nicaea in 325 A.D., in an attempt to prove the deity of Christ and the doctrine of the Trinity, no one quoted that passage. Why? Probably because they didn't know about it because it wasn't a part of the original text. The reading is not found in any of the earliest New Testament translations. The New Testament was translated into Latin and Syriac and Coptic. It's not found in any of those ancient translations. It's omitted from the Latin Vulgate, translated and and issued by Jerome. It's not there either. All of this is pretty convincing, isn't it? It's very unlikely this belonged in the original text. So how then did it get into the King James Version? How did it get there? Well, there was a man named Erasmus who had already come up with two editions of the Greek New Testament in 1516 and 1519. And he was getting ready to come up with a third edition of the Greek New Testament 
And he had admitted it in the first place because he could find no Greek manuscript that contained the King James reading here, the Comma Johannium. But he was pressured by some who told him, look, you're admitting a very important Trinitarian proof text here. You need to put this in here. Erasmus said, look, you, if you can come up with one Greek manuscript that contains it, I'll put it in. Finally, they were able to come up with one that was probably from the 1500s. And reluctantly, Erasmus put it in there, only to later admit it from his final two editions of the Greek New Testament. But because Erasmus included it in 1522, in his third edition, it became, became a more popular reading. It eventually made its way into the Textus Receptus, or the received text from which the King James Version was translated, and therefore you have it now in the King James Bible. But before Erasmus' third edition of the Greek New Testament, this was not a very popular reading at all. Now it became popular in the early English versions like the Geneva Bible or the NKJV, etc. So for my study, it seems very likely that this did not belong in the original text of 1 John. The external evidence seems to prove that. But there's also internal evidence for this. If you just read the passage itself, it seems like a very strange break in the text. John talks about the Spirit and the water and the blood being witnesses. Then all of a sudden he goes to the Father, the Word, and the Holy Ghost, and then goes right back to the Spirit and the water and the blood. seems likely someone inserted that right there in the middle. Someone just added that. But whatever the case, it seems to me that the way the more modern versions read now, the NASB, the ESV, probably are more accurate here. That does not mean the King James isn't a good Bible. It is. It's the Word of God. It just means that no translation is perfect. We have to read them and understand some of the text behind them. And in this case, I think the King James Version got it off. So, I think the NASB is right here. The ESV is right. That's the way we're going to deal with the text. And this is what John then really said. Before we read that, let me, let me add this. The theology of what's said in, in the King James of 1 John 5 is not in question. It's not in question. I, I don't think the text itself belongs there, but it's certainly true that the Father, the Word, and the Holy Spirit bear testimony to Christ. It's certainly true that the Father, the Word, and the Holy Spirit are three persons that make up one God, that share one divine being. But we don't need that passage to prove it. Other Scripture proves it. And even though that truth is taught elsewhere, I don't think that's taught here in 1 John. So here's what I think John really said in the NASB, verses 7 and 8. For there are three that testify, the Spirit and the water and the blood, and the three are in agreement. These are the three witnesses that bear testimony to the divine sonship of Jesus, and their testimony is sufficient and trustworthy. They're in agreement. The death of Christ, the baptism of Christ, and the Spirit of Christ all agree that Jesus is the Son of God. So why should you believe that Jesus is the Christ and Son of God? Because there are sufficient witnesses that testify to that fact. There's sufficient proof. We could add to John's proof from the rest of Scripture, couldn't we? We could add that the resurrection was validated by 500 eyewitnesses, many of whom lost their lives because they wouldn't deny that they had seen the risen Jesus. We could add textual criticism and show how the Bible has been preserved better than any document of antiquity. We could add so many proofs to the validity of the Bible and the deity of Christ. 
But these three witnesses are the ones John gives us, and they're enough. The water of the baptism of Christ, the blood of His crucifixion, and the Holy Spirit all bear testimony. This means the modern day heretics are wrong. The ancient heretics were wrong. Christ is not a man empowered by the Christ Spirit. He is Himself the Christ. Those who teach today that theory I told you about several weeks ago, the universal Christ, this idea that there's the universal Christ who manifests Himself in many ways. Jesus of Nazareth is just one example of how He manifested Himself. But He's done it in other ways. and So people in other religions can actually come to find this Christ in their own path. Salvation's in Christ alone, but not Jesus alone. That's a lie. That's a damning heresy. John says Jesus is the Christ. This is the one who came and not another. He came as the Christ and Son of God. And He was such at His baptism and at His death. And the Holy Spirit provides His testimony to that. So do you believe that truth this morning? Do you believe in the true Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, God the Son, if not, my plea to you today is that you would come to Him. That you would find life in Him. He alone can save you from your sin. He alone can deliver you from the wrath of God that is to come. He alone is a sufficient Redeemer of sinners. So come to Him and you'll find life in His name. But if you do already believe this truth, then may you go into the world and bear testimony to the fact that Jesus really is the Son of God. So three sufficient witnesses, the Spirit, the water, and the blood. And we'll save the fourth one for next time. So make sure you come and hear that. Let's pray. Father, thank You so much for the clarity of Your Word. And even though we have different translations with slightly Different readings, we know, Lord, what the original said because we have a well-preserved text. Because even those variants really make no difference. We know even if the King James Version reading is right, what it says is true. We know that there is one God in three persons. We know that this three-person God bears witness to the reality of Jesus' deity. And so we're thankful that Your Word is so clear so carefully and sovereignly preserved that it's come even to us 2,000 years later upon whom the ends of the ages have come. We love Christ. We long to honor Him. We long to glorify Him. And we know we have sufficient reason to believe in Him. I pray that each of us would hold fast to Jesus as the world tells us lies about Him, as they seek to convince us of their erroneous ideologies concerning Christ, I pray that we would hold fast to the real biblical Jesus, knowing that as John later says, we have eternal life in Him. So thank you for your Son, we pray. Amen.